So uh, y'all can see I've got the whole boot thing going here. I'm on my little stool. Uh, I broke my toe. In fact, I broke my toe in two places. Uh, Mark and I were on vacation. Uh, we took a week off after the Christmas holidays to kind of catch our breath and kind of get rejuvenated as a couple. And I was going down some steps, and the next thing I know, I'm sliding down those slips. But anyway, thank y'all for letting me sit up here uh, on the stool today. I might do this all the time. I kind of like this. What do y'all think? So anyway, uh, as Matt said, we are kicking off a new sermon series today called Love Is. Uh, the title of this sermon series comes from 1 Corinthians 13, uh, and y'all are familiar with this. Uh, probably, this is probably one of the best known passages of scripture uh, outside of the church, and it begins by saying, love is is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Let me ask you a question. How many of you who are married had this read at your wedding? How many of you had this read at your wedding? Okay. How many of you have been to a wedding where you heard this read? That's right. How many of you have seen this on a poster, a song, or somewhere else? That's right. A, a greeting card. Uh, this passage is often thought of in the context of romantic love. But I want us to think about, and we're going to be unpacking this in the next several weeks here, is that the original audience um, that heard this, the reason, the purpose that this passage was written uh, to a group of people had nothing to do with marriage, had nothing to do with dating, had nothing to do with kind of what we traditionally think of as the context where we hear this passage read. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not an application in marriage, that there's not an application when it comes to romantic relationships, but that was not the primary primary purpose. And so we're going to kind of be digging into that and, uh, and then lifting up one specific phrase uh, this week uh, in that passage. And we're going to be taking the rest of the month of February and into March where we're just going to be slowly but surely talk, going through these different descriptors. So, all right, to kick us off, I was reading a book called Rising Strong. Uh, the author is Brene Brown. And she tells a story that, I don't know if you've ever just read some, a book by somebody and you just go, oh my gosh, I think she is just writing about my story uh, because she gets me. The things she struggles with are the things I struggle with. But she starts off in, uh, telling this story, and she said that uh, it had just been one of those days. Now, y'all tell me if you've ever had, especially if you're married, family, if you've had one of these days. Well, you don't even have to be married. I mean, just one of these days. But she said they got up late. Uh, they were running a little behind. Uh, alarms didn't go off. Uh, one kid couldn't find their backpack. One kid, you know, was in a bowel mood. They, they finally get everybody out the door. She said she had back-to-back -back meetings, just one thing right after the other. I see some folks laughing. Y'all had these mornings, you know. Back-to-back. Uh, -back. Her husband is a pediatrician, so it was cold and flu season, so he's been nonstop, you know, taking care of kids. But anyway, they all come back to the house, it's dinner time, and the husband opens the door to the refrigerator. Or did I hear any laughs or groans? He opens the door to the refrigerator, and he goes, there's nothing in the refrigerator. And he goes, man, there's not even any lunch meat. 
So Brene Brown says the first thing that she felt and heard, you know, you get defensive. It's like she felt like her husband was being critical of her, you know, here, you know, that, that he was somehow criticizing her for not having a meal ready, not having a plan, all of that. She was feeling inferior, inadequate, she talks about. And she said she snapped back at him and she said, I've had a busy day too, and I've been doing da 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 So she pulled out what I called, and tell me if you ever do this, she pulled out an imaginary scorecard. Did y'all have imaginary scorecards? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like when you're playing golf, there's a scorecard, and you've got, you know, when Mark and I play golf, there's a scorecard, and it's got Mark, and it's got Fran. And on that scorecard, we keep score of how many shots, you know. And so the goal is, in most games, but especially golf, is, you know, you want to win. And so she pulls out this imaginary scorecard, and she goes, well, this is what I've done. And so she starts listing off the things that she's done. And she's like, you could go buy groceries too. Well, he pulls out his imaginary scorecard, you know, because it is a competition, is it not? And, uh, and he says, well, let me tell you, I've gone to get the groceries like every week for the last. And so now the competition begins. All right. Anybody, can you relate to that? I mean, it might be that you have been trying to get together with a friend, maybe for lunch or dinner or something like that, but it feels like every time you reach out to this friend and they're like, oh yeah, let's get together, maybe we can do it Tuesday night, and you make plans, and then the next thing you know, you're getting a text on Tuesday, and they're like, oh, you know, something's come up at work, or I'm tired, I can't make it, and so they keep canceling. So in your mind, what do you do? You whip out the imaginary scorecard, and it's like, I am putting more into this relationship than you are. I'm the one who keeps texting. You're the one that keeps canceling. And so we begin to fill in the gaps with these imaginary stories, if you will. We create a narrative about the motives, the intentions, what this other person has and has not done. I remember specifically one time, in fact, I told this, this story to my sister the other day, and I thought, I am still hanging on to this. But I remember uh, I felt like I had a coworker uh, in another job that I had. And anyway, and I felt like this person didn't like me. And, uh, and I remember there was a staff Christmas party, and, and, and I just felt like there was some friction between us. But I thought I was right, and I couldn't figure out why she was mad at me because, I, of course, you know, I hadn't done anything wrong. But anyway, but I remember going to this Christmas party. It was a staff Christmas party, and I'd walked in. It was one of the last ones to go through the food line. And there was nowhere to sit except at the table where this coworker was. And so I go and I sit down at the table because and, and I, everybody at the table speaks to me. Everybody and I speak to everybody, make eye contact, except this one coworker. Like she wouldn't even make eye contact with me. And I'm like, are we in middle school? So what do I do? I pull out my scorecard that I keep in my mind at all times. And it's like, you know what? I spoke to her then. I was nice to her then. I was, you know, I am winning in the relationship war here. And she is not, you know? Do y'all ever do that? So let me ask you this. What are some of the problems with keeping score in your relationships? Husbands, wife, moms, dads, friends, coworkers. What, what are some of the unfairness of this, if I could say. Okay, so, all right, so a couple of things. You know what, you said, you said something, but I'm going to, I'm going to change, somebody said, uh, 
uh, Rachel Fortuna said, no one ever wins. Here's, here's the problem, though. The relationship never wins. You got that? The relationship never wins. Because when I am keeping score, I am an unfair judge because I always skew it in my favor and in my direction. Does that make sense? So I can always manipulate the story in my head, the narrative, so that I am the winner and whoever else I'm keeping score with, they are always the loser. And sometimes it's simple things like, well, I took out the trash and you didn't and I put the kids to bed, but you didn't. You know, sometimes it's like that, but here's the problem with keeping score. When that scorecard is filled with with incident after incident after incident that's negative, it bankrupts the oneness, the connection that we are created to have with one another, and it also destroys that unity. Now, I want us to shift gears just a little bit, and I want us to take a second, and I want us to think about the book of 1 Corinthians, Corinth, the people of Corinth. And we're going to shift gears a little bit, because what I want us to do is I want us to spend a little bit of time understanding why Paul wrote this beautiful, beautiful poem uh, that we find in 1 Corinthians 13. What was, the, what was the circumstance? What was the situation? And I think as we lean into their story, we are going to hear our story as well. Because what he's talking about is I think it is just human nature. And so in this, Paul gives us, I think, some, one, some, some, some do's and some don'ts. You know, here is what love looks like. Here's what it doesn't look like. But then I want to also just give you some, just some, almost some life hacks, some tips, some help uh, that has, just some, just some ideas that have helped me to be better at not keeping score. So what do we know about the Corinthians? So the Corinth, Corinth it was a port city found in Greece. Uh, it was a place where there were Roman gods, there were Greek gods, there were Jews. It was a metropolitan area. It was an area of commerce. And so Paul goes, you can read about it in Acts 18. He is going around the Mediterranean basin. He has been totally changed by uh, the resurrection, the uh, you know, just his faith in Christ. So he is now going around and starting churches. So he goes to Corinth. Uh, we read about that. He, he meets in the synagogue and he goes into the city. But eventually, a community of faith is formed. And he stays with them for 18 months. He is their founding pastor, um, if you will. And then he moves on, leaves the church in good hands, and he goes on to Ephesus to continue his ministry. Well, there is a woman in the church. Now, y'all see if y'all can relate to this, and her name is Chloe. Well, Chloe is a bit of a tattletale. So, and she, uh, in, the, in the first chapter there, and I'll read it to you exactly how he writes it. He says, my brothers and sisters, speaking to this church that he had started, he's the founding pastor, but now he's off, and uh, he was there with them. He's poured into them. His heart is there, and he says, okay, brothers and sisters. Again, this is the context. He said, um, there are some folks from Chloe, Chloe's household, and here's the deal. They have informed me, I love that, okay, they have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And this is the beginning of this beautiful, beautiful book. And this is the context in the heart. The people of God are quarreling. 
And I know that husbands and wives have quarrels, mothers and daughters have quarrels, but the primary audience here is the church was quarreling. And he writes to them and he said, I appeal to you, I beg you, this is right there in that very first chapter in that opening, and he says that you would agree with one another. And then he says, oh, my heart, my heart, this is Fran's translation. And he says, but there would be no divisions among you. So that is the context that 1 Corinthians 13 is written. It is a pastor's, it is a founding pastor's letter to a congregation that is about to just rip themselves apart because they're quarreling and they don't get along. Some of the things that they were quarreling about, and I won't go into great detail about this, but one is there were just factions within the church. I mean, do y'all, have y'all ever been in a church setting where there are factions? If you haven't, you haven't been in church very long. <laughs> or you just come on Sundays and then you sneak out. But if you get too involved in a church, that is kind of our human nature. They've got this little group and that little group, but there were factions. Uh, there were also disagreements. You had people who were from the, the Jewish background, people who were from a Greek or a Roman background, and they had differences of opinions about these Jewish dietary laws. And so they were at odds with one another. And I can imagine the scorecard coming out. All right, I was in the marketplace. I saw you. I saw you go eat some food that was sacrificed to idols. Check, check. I am more spiritual than you because I don't do that. So they're even, so that they got their little scorecards out. Um, another thing that they were disagreeing about was um, actually some of their, um, just how they, I'm trying to think of a nice G-rated way to say this, but um, some of their sexual practices. Um, so there were some within the church that would say that to be together is between, you know, a man and a woman in the context of marriage. Uh, another would say, you know, that that's God's purpose purpose for this activity, and then others would say, no, you know, we come from a pagan background, and a part of our religious worship is to uh, go to the temple and to engage with prostitutes there. Others would say, but there was just this diverse opinion, and, and Paul was saying, all right, you've broken off into factions about that as well, and some think you're better than the other person. You got your scorecard out. Another thing that was going on is that even how they worshipped, they, they were keeping score with one another. If you read in 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Corinthians 12, kind of the chapter before and the chapter after, 1 Corinthians 13, they were arguing over who was the most spiritual. Um, they had these wonderful gifts of the Holy Spirit that were being poured out, uh, prophecy, tongues, healing, all of these things. And they were saying, well, I, you know, I think my gift is the most important. No, I think my gift. I think I'm the most spiritual. And in all of these things, Paul kind of says, guys, you have completely and totally missed what it means to be the body of Christ. And it's there in, in 1 Corinthians where he talks about we are a community of faith. We are like a body. And, and the gospel is not about all these factions. It is about believing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he is our resurrected Savior, and all of life needs to be viewed and our behavior needs to be modeled after the pattern of Christ. And then he launches into this beautiful passage. So if you will, uh, let's pull up 1 Corinthians 13. And I want us to, to read this together. 
And then I'm going to dig down and we're going to lift up one of the verses and I'm going to say a little bit about that. So here we go, Joseph. All right. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. What beautiful words that Paul wrote to this church that he had gotten word that they were quarreling. So as we are unpacking this, and I knew today I had a blank slate, and the verse, the phrase that is my Achilles heel, I thought I would start with y'all there, and it's this one right here where he writes, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record. Love is not a scorekeeper. That is not love. When you find yourself, when I find myself pulling my imaginary scorecard out of my pocket, the relationship is the loser every time. And that's what Paul is saying. Let's look at some other ways that uh, different translations of how this phrase has been translated from the Greek into the English. Uh, The New American Standard, I like this. It says, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. And so that Greek word there about not taking into account, sometimes it's translated different ways, but it's really, it's a reckoning. It's a, it's a, it's a, Paul uses it almost in a, um, in a banking sense. Uh, Back in the day, some of you might remember, um, anybody remember taking accounting where you had debits and credits and the ledgers and you had to write them in? Um, I see some of our bankers here nodding their, their heads. But it's the idea is that in a bank account, you have the things that are credited to that, you know, that, the, the things, I guess, a credit takes out and a debit puts in. Now, now I'm kind of, <laughs> there's, you got your credit card, you got your debit card. But it's the idea is that the positive things that we do in a relationship, you know, build that, that emotional bank account. The, the withdrawals take out, they, they withdraw. And so, but what Paul is saying there is no accounting, no accounting in our relationships with our brothers and our sisters Throw away the scorecard. The New Revised Standard Version says that love is not irritable or resentful. And, and it's interesting because the Greek word there kind of, uh, you, it leans in this direction as well. It is that idea that when you have, when you feel that an injustice has been done towards you, that is when you begin to feel resentful. You begin to have those feelings of, ah, you know, I'm just irritated with that person. I'm resentful because of what, you know, fill in the blank. The Common English Bible says, it doesn't keep a record of complaints. And then my absolute favorite out of all of these is that love doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Isn't that beautiful? Love doesn't keep score of the sins of others. 
So think about this verse and this, this idea of not keeping score and how impactful that could be to this little church trying to survive in Corinth. You had people who were, you know, Romans and Greeks and Jews and all these different nationalities coming together in this mixing pot trying to be the body of Christ. Now, let's think about your relationships and think about how, what, what are those things in your mind and in your, in your life where you find yourself keeping score? And as we mentioned earlier, kind of one of the challenges with it is that when I keep score, often the intent, I, I'm imagining that you are madder at me, more upset at me, or more, you know, you've dropped the ball more times. So I'm making up these stories in my head. The, the key and kind of the, I don't know, kind of the thing that has helped me a lot came out of this book by Brene Brown, Rising Strong. And one of the things that she recommends that we do, so, so imagine, and to me, and let me, I'm going to break this up into two categories. There are the people that it is not healthy for me, for them to be in my life in a, in a daily basis. Do you know what I'm talking about? There are some people who I have forgiven. Uh, I love them. I, they owe nothing. I, I've totally released them. But because of some things going on in their world, I've drawn some boundaries. Does that make sense? So I'm not talking about that relationship. I'm talking about the people that you want to be connected to, you want to be in community with, the people that are your brothers, your sisters, your, your community, your, your tribe, your people. So Brene Brown she writes and she says, you know, one of the things when you find yourself making up these stories in your head, scorekeeping, so to speak, she said, I want to give you five simple words. And if you can learn to practice these words, she, she calls it a life hack. She said, I think this has the power to change our human interactions that we have with the people that we love and care for. And here is the, the phrase that she recommends. And it is this. The story I'm telling myself is fill in the blank. So Brene writes in her book, and she said, so her husband standing at the refrigerator, and he says, there's no food. There's not even anything to, you know, make sandwiches with. And she says, you know, hey, I did this, this, and this. And he's, you know, she, and he said, she said, I didn't, something about the grocery store. And he said, I know, I go every week. And so what she wanted to do was pull away. But instead, she came back into the conversation and she said, Honey, Steve, she said, the story I'm telling myself is that you don't think I'm doing a good enough job here as a wife and as a mother, that you are critical of me, that, I, that you think I'm failing. And she said, and I realize that might be tapping into my own insecurities, but that's the story I'm telling myself right now. Now, let me ask you a question. Imagine you're on the other side of that statement. Does that, other, does that statement cause you to want to punch back and feel defensive? It doesn't because she's taking complete ownership of the narrative that she has going on in her head. And so what Steve came back and he said, oh, sweetheart, I'm not upset at you at all. I'm upset with me. He said, we've both had busy days. I could have gone to the grocery store just like you. He said, I'm frustrated with myself that I didn't go. And ah, the relationship is the winner. And Brene nor Steve, there's no winners and losers. You know what I'm saying? There's no scorecard. Together, the relationship is the winner.
Mark and I, you know, on this vacation where I broke my toe, um, I had some expectations kind of about what the day was going to look like. I had kind of wanted to do some snorkeling and, and do some activities. And so Mark had been kind of you know, going along with me. I wasn't quite sure he really wanted to do it because he had said, you know, what I really want to do on this vacation is just kind of, uh, we were, uh, anyway, he said, I just want to sit on the beach. I, I really want to rest. He said, I'm so, I'm ready for this vacation. And so I'd kind of been trying to pull back on my go, 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 go. You know what I'm saying? Like, cause I thought, well, he wants to kind of be a little more chill, read that sort of thing. And so I was kind of dialing it back because I didn't think he wanted to do those things. And then I got up to go get me something to eat. And then I came back to our chairs where we were sitting and the next thing he's not sitting there and he's playing volleyball with a group of guys over there and I was like so I sit there for an hour an hour by myself he's playing volleyball and I'm like dude I would have loved it's like if you wanted to do things I mean in my mind so okay y'all narrative it's rolling in my head and by and my sweet husband he's just playing volleyball you know what I'm saying he's just playing he's on vacation there's a volleyball game and coming somebody said hey want you play volleyball so he comes back and he sits down and so my chair his chair yeah there was a vibe so there was a vibe and I'm like we're on vacation you know you went and played with those guys you're not spending time with me but what I really the story that I made up in my head was that he didn't want to be with me he didn't want to do the things. He didn't want to be with me. He wanted to be with those guys more than me. So I can pout, but I had Brene's, you know, words in my head. And so I said, honey, I said, um, I am a little upset right now. And I said, but I need to tell you why. And I said, because here is the story I'm making up in my head is that you don't want to spend time with me right now. I'm almost embarrassed to tell you all that, that I would even be that insecure. <laughs> And, you know, so, of course, Mark is like, oh, my gosh, I would never do that. You know, of course, I mean, we bought plane tickets to go on vacation together, obviously. And he said, I really didn't want to play volleyball. He said, but, oh, my gosh, those guys kept, they needed one more person to make the team. And they'd been by here three or four times. And he said, you know, so he said, yeah, it was fun. But can you imagine how that day could have looked different if I didn't use the magic word, so to speak? So I tell you that to say is that in our interactions with one another, when Paul writes, love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Love doesn't keep score. It's because he knows that every single time your relationship will always be the loser, even if you win on the scorecard. So great wisdom for the church at Corinth, great wisdom for us today. I think another thing that has helped me with this is that when I am tempted to be petty and to be, you know, get my little scorecard out, is to also think about what Jesus did for me, what Jesus did for you. And on the cross, when Jesus died, Paul writes about this in the book of Corinthians, some of the most beautiful passages about the crucifixion and the resurrection and how Jesus became sin for us. The things that we have done wrong against our neighbor and against God, that Jesus took the punishment for that. He, all those things that are on our score, you know, if God were up in heaven keeping a scorecard against us, we wouldn't do very well. But Jesus has taken that scorecard and he has torn it up. And the scriptures tell us that God doesn't take our sin into account. We 
have received his grace. And Paul writes, in light of the resurrection, in light of the crucifixion, in light of God's love for you, now Christ followers live out that grace towards one another. I think another thing that helps me is seeing my, my relationships in light of the cross, in light of the gospel. But Mark and I had another thing that um, happened this week, and we've shared it with some of you, um, and some of you might not know this, but um, on Saturday a week ago, um, so now so eight days, uh, we got a phone call um, from Mark's mother that our 26-year-old nephew had died um, unexpectedly um, and um, really don't know the cause of death. He was healthy, um, but he and our daughter, so all right now I'm shifting, now I'm just being personal, but, but our, our three daughters are the same ages as Cheryl's kids, so you have heard me talk about Mary, she's the same age as Brandon, you know, Elizabeth is the same age as Baxley, and then Walker, our nephew that passed away, his birthday is a week apart from our daughter Katie's birthday. And so we've just grown up with these kids, and, you know, uh, Cheryl and I were both stay-at-home moms, many, many hours spent vacationing, playing, keeping each other's kids. And so in the light of all that, our hearts have just been in shock, uh, broken, um, the thing that gives us hope is that uh, this past fall, uh, Walker had gone on a retreat with his church. Um, it's called a walk to Emmaus. Some of you might be familiar with that. And on that retreat, he had given his heart to the Lord. And um, during the Thanksgiving this past year, we did Thanksgiving um, with their family. And uh, Walker pulled Mark and I aside and was telling us about his newfound faith and how, what God was doing in his life. And so... In some ways, it made it even, you know, it, it was kind of the sting has been, has been taken away, but our hearts are grieving. And as I think about, you know, the pettiness of life, the fractions that we have with one another, you know, it's kind of like Paul was saying, you know, guys, this isn't it. This is just the dress rehearsal for eternity. And, you know, put your divisions, put your factions, put your quarrelings aside you know, this is about a relationship with a God who created the universe, who loves you more than you can even fathom. And he wants to give you a community, a community of faith, relationships with brothers and sisters. Oh, Paul, you know, oh, oh Corinthians, oh, Martha Bowman, you know, don't let us quarrel and have factions. Let us love supremely because love is patient and love is kind and love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And here's the most powerful news of all. It never, ever fails. Imagine if we could live and walk that out every day, not perfectly, but when we get off track, using something as simple as the story I'm making up in my head is and have the courage to not keep score, to tear it up, and to say, I don't care. You are more important to me than the scorecard.